You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to wrestle with these issues, to come to a deeper understanding of you and the plan that you've been unfolding to save mankind. Father, I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we search your word today. Help us to find clarity and understanding in regards to your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that we would uh, be empowered in the way that you have called us to be in living out our Christian faith because the Holy Spirit indwells us in a way in the New Testament uh, that's different than the Old Testament. So God, help us to see that the expectations are increased in the New Testament on the type of life that we should be living and the type of effects our life should be having on others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been wrestling through the last couple of weeks implications that the New Covenant has on the New Testament believer. What What is different about the New Covenant? How should we understand differences from the Old Covenant? We talked specifically last week again about baptism, how important it is to understand baptism in the context of covenant, because how we see baptism fitting into covenant will dictate whether we baptize infants or not. So it has big, crucial implications on our um, ecclesiology, how we understand the church and how the church functions today. So covenant, very relevant for our understanding of baptism in our local church setting. Uh, The Holy Spirit, to a different degree, um, affects us as well in our ecclesiology. Um, I don't think that our understanding of how he functions in the Old Testament is as crucial as it is for us to understand how circumcision functions in the Old Testament. Um, I believe that we have clear indication in the New Testament of, of how the Holy Spirit's to be functioning in our life, that we can rely less on having a really good pneumatology in the Old Testament, pneumatology being the study of the Holy Spirit. Our understanding can still be um, cloudy in the Old Testament, and it not directly affect us too much in the New Testament. Uh, because the Holy Spirit comes in a full way in the New Testament, most of our understanding about the Holy Spirit springs from the text in the New Testament. But we do want to wrestle through this morning with what the Old Testament has to say. We want to see some consistency in the covenants based on how the Holy Spirit was working in the Old Testament and allow that to uh, springboard us into understanding the Holy Spirit and his gifting of the church in the New Testament. All right, so some initial thoughts Real quick before we get into this, um, our understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament is somewhat veiled due to the writer's knowledge of the Spirit being limited. So as we look into the Old Testament today and try to understand better what the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament, we have to understand that there's still going to exist some cloudiness there because there wasn't full understanding by the Old Testament writers about the Holy Spirit. In the same way, we can find Jesus in the Old Testament. But it would be difficult to put together the type of theology that we embrace about Jesus strictly from the Old Testament. The New Testament brings clarity to the Christ of the Old Testament. The New Testament brings a lot of clarity to the Holy Spirit, whereas he's veiled sometimes in the Old Testament and how we understand his working. Secondly, our practical understanding of the Spirit and his working in us today is found best in the New Testament. So if we're seeking to understand 
what should be happening in my life with the Holy Spirit living inside of me, we're going to find our best understanding for that in the New Testament. So we're going to go to the New Testament predominantly for our understanding of the Holy Spirit and how he works in the life of the believer. That's why we'll spend the bulk of our time talking about spiritual giftedness uh, by examining the New Testament texts that come after Pentecost. Third, well, before I give you number three, hopefully we would all agree that the Holy Spirit is necessary for salvation. But when we say that, what do we mean by the Holy Spirit is necessary for our salvation? What role does the Holy Spirit play that's necessary for a believer to come to Christ? Okay, and by regeneration, what do we mean? Okay, he opens up blinded eyes to see truth. Okay, so regeneration, the Holy Spirit opens eyes to see truth. What else? What, what is necessary about the Holy Spirit for us to be saved? Okay, conviction of sin. What else? What is necessary about the Holy Spirit in regards to our salvation? Anybody? Okay. He guarantees our salvation. He keeps us saved. All right, those would be the three key things that I would say about the Holy Spirit and his necessity for our salvation. He opens eyes to see truth. Previously, we're blinded because of the fall. Eyes are opened. Sin is revealed to us. We're convicted of it. There's a turning of, of um, faith in God now. And then the Holy Spirit guarantees our salvation. The Holy Spirit keeps us persevering in the faith. Now, I would say the Holy Spirit was just as necessary for the salvation of Old Testament believers as for the New Testament believers. So everything that I, I believe, everything we believe about the role the Holy Spirit plays for salvation in the New Testament has to be true for Old Testament believers. Now, I can't take you to um, texts that clearly identify all those aspects. But logically, thinking through what Scripture has to say about New Testament believers, if it's not true of Old Testament believers, then what we're essentially saying is a New Testament individual is more depraved than an Old Testament individual. Meaning, if the Holy Spirit's not necessary, if, if people in the Old Testament didn't have to experience regeneration, if they didn't have to have the Holy Spirit open their eyes to truth and convict them of sin and keep them persevering in the faith, then what we're saying is that the Old Testament guy was, was better than the New Testament individual. He was better at saving himself, in a sense, than the New Testament believer. If we're saying that an Old Testament believer could see truth without the Holy Spirit, if he could be convicted of sin without the Holy Spirit, if he could persevere in the faith without the Holy Spirit, then we have to say the Old Testament people were better. And yet what seems to be the indication in Scripture is that the advantages lie in the New Testament. 
Clarity comes in the New Testament. You have advantages over the Old Testament people because you now have greater revelation about God's plan. So I think it would be a mistake for us to minimize the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament because by doing so, we are saying, man, we're just a lot more sinful in the New Testament and we need some assistance to get saved, whereas in the Old Testament they didn't. Does that make sense? So I think it's important for us to see the Holy Spirit doing the same salvific purposes in the Old Testament that he does in the New Testament. Okay? Um, and hopefully we're going to see how some of that unfolds, but we're going to see that there was some differences in the Old Testament that really get fulfilled in the New Testament. All right? I want to take us to John chapter 7, though, to begin this morning. So John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37. All right, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right? We take this passage and try to understand it just in itself. But you guys know that it's important to understand Scripture in its context that it's being given in. So if I'm reading that passage and wanting to study it, immediately... I think you've got to ask the question, what's significant about the last day of the feast, the great day, when Jesus chooses to proclaim this information to everybody? So we have to back up to the beginning of chapter 7. So John chapter 7, after this, verse 1, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Some translations may say the Feast of Tabernacles. Does anybody know what the, the purpose, the significance, the reason, what they were celebrating in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles? Okay, what they would do is they would gather for the purpose of uh, praising God for his provision of shelter, food, and water during their time in the wilderness. Okay, so a lot of these feasts and festivals... Uh, things like Passover, they were done in celebration of what God had done in the past, how he had demonstrated faithfulness to his past. It's important for us to celebrate God's past faithfulness for our children. It's important for them to see that God has been faithful to you in your past. It's important for, for children to understand uh, God's faithfulness to, to the people of the, the New Testament church. That's one of the reasons that church history is important. Because it shows God's faithfulness to his people in a newer context. Obviously, the Old Testament's important, but we can see uh, God's faithfulness in the New Testament as well as we understand God's faithfulness to the New Testament church. But then even in our family context, it's important for those that are uh, just starting out their life together, Jesse and Cortland, for them to be able to relate to their children one day how God has been faithful to them individually and then how he's been faithful to them as husband and wife. 
all these festivals and things were designed to reiterate to generation after generation God's faithfulness. Feast of Booths or Tabernacles designed to remember God's faithfulness to provide the basic necessities of life, provision, food, and shelter when it, in, a, in a time in Israel's history where they did not have it on their own. They're wandering in the wilderness, and God is faithfully providing for them. Now, it was customary in this festival for the priest to pour out water next to the altar while chanting Isaiah 12.3. That's important. Let's turn over to Isaiah 12.3. Remember, this is relevant to what we're talking about because we have a divine hermeneutic here where in black text, if you've got red and black, Jesus doesn't say, verse 39, John is saying, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit here, the Holy Spirit who's not yet been given. All right, so Isaiah 12, 3. Behold, God is my salvation. Or verse 2. I will trust and will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Now verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So the Jewish people are participating in this feast, and it's very likely that at this very point where the priest is pouring this water out and proclaiming wells of salvation, that Jesus stands up and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of this scripture that you're chanting. I'm the well of salvation. I think it's important for us to to, to note that he's not just promising personal satisfaction. He's making a promise that what he can give to them will spill out into others. Jesus is saying, I'm the thirst quencher. I'll, I'll, I'll quench your thirst, but I'm also the river maker. I'm going to allow this water to not only satisfy you, but to spill out into those that you come in context with. Those that you're in relationship with are going to be the benefactors of what's going to happen in your life. You're going to be filled up with this water that's coming. It's going to quench your thirst, but it's going to spill out into the lives of others around you. Isaiah 58.11 talks about this as well. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What we see, and I think this is the big, gigantic difference between Old Testament and what the Holy Spirit was doing versus New Testament and what the Holy Spirit's doing. What we see throughout the Old Testament is that Israel is very inward focused. It's all about Israel. It's all about being part of national Israel. You go through the Old Testament, you don't see a lot of evangelistic efforts to reach the nations. It's just not there. You don't see a concern for other people that aren't Israelites. You don't see a concern for people that are half Israelites. You know from Sunday school that there there was tension between the Samaritan people and the Israelite people. People that were considered half-breeds, only half-Israelites. We don't even want to go near them. We'll walk around their city to avoid them. 
A lot of racial issues with the Israelite people. Look back in John chapter 7, the context of when Jesus is giving this. Look at verse 35 and 36. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that he will not, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where am I? You cannot come. They were concerned. Is he going to actually go teach the Gentile people this stuff? Is he going to lower himself to go interact with Gentile people? These are the best of the best religious people in Israel at that time. And they have no regard for the Gentiles. Jesus says, I'm going to fill you in a way where you're going to spill out into those that you come in contact with. The big difference in Old Testament and New Testament. There was a narrow-mindedness in their views about others in the Old Testament. And what we see happen in the New Testament after Pentecost is that there's a gushing out everywhere in the book of Acts. The disciples are impacted greatly at Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And what you see unfold in all of the believers' lives in the book of Acts is this gushing out of water that's affecting everybody around them. They're coming together. They're selling their stuff. They're committed to the apostles' doctrine. There's such a, a, an intense level of unity in the local church that people are being drawn to salvation. You're seeing people come to Christ in massive numbers. People from all nations coming in massive numbers. Something that was not evident before Pentecost. You had people that, that were believers in Yahweh, people that followed Yahweh, but you didn't have a, a level of concern for others like you see after Pentecost. I think Jesus is alluding to a big change that's going to happen. That I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And it's going to have such a filling effect that you can't contain it. You can't hold it in. It's going to spill out into those that you are uh, surrounded by. It's going to have huge impact in ways that we haven't seen before in the Old Testament. I mean, think about it. Even with guys like Daniel and Joseph, people, heroes of the faith, you don't have mass evangelistic effort going on in Babylon or Egypt even. I mean, they're faithful. The Bible presents them as faithful. But you don't see Egypt start worshiping Yahweh on a grand scale for very long, really, at all. You see, you see little, little hints of it, but you don't see massive evangelistic efforts like you do in the book of Acts. I think there's an empowering of the Holy Spirit that happens that doesn't just fill the individual, begins to spill over into others that are then drawn to salvation in ways that wasn't previously known in the Old Testament. So let's look at the Holy Spirit working in the Old Testament. Now again, I'm going to try to hit things that, that I'm definitely confident in right now. But I'm admitting to you, this is an area where I feel like I still have a lot to learn in understanding exactly how the Holy Spirit functions in the Old Testament. So I don't want to... I don't want to make any assumptions that I would then go back on in the future after looking at this more and studying it more. So I want to give you some definitive things that I feel confident today saying, yes, this is true about the Old Testament Holy Spirit working. Okay? The first is that obviously the Holy Spirit is eternal and was present in the Old Testament, specifically creation. So the Holy Spirit is eternal and he was present at creation, which obviously means he's not part of creation. 
That's important to know. We talk about the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, but that does not need to imply to us that he began to exist at Pentecost. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit was present at creation. He's eternal. Okay, it's important for us to note that. If he's eternal, it means that he's there in the Old Testament. We just have to find him. Okay? Christ is eternal. He's there in the Old Testament. He's written into the pages of the Old Testament. He doesn't begin to exist when Mary conceives in the womb. Okay? He is there. He is present. The Holy Spirit is there and present. He's eternal. Secondly, the Holy Spirit regenerated all believers in the Old Testament. I feel very confident in saying that. The Holy Spirit regenerated all believers in the Old Testament. Not some of them, but all of them. I believe Scripture is real clear. You can't get saved absent from the Holy Spirit. And I don't think that changes. I don't think that, that, that salvation changes across covenants. I think God's plan has always been to save man by faith through the work of Christ. That it's never been by man's efforts and so if God designed salvation to happen one way, it happens that way across all time. So I would say that the Holy Spirit regenerated all believers in the Old Testament. I don't think you see the same wordage necessarily that becomes more familiar in the New Testament. Again, there's some lack of understanding by the writers in the Old Testament, I think, about what's even going on in their life. So I think you would expect to see some more clear usage in the New Testament when the presence of the Holy Spirit becomes more obvious in the New Testament. So when Peter and Paul and these guys sit down and begin to write, they're very aware of the Holy Spirit they encountered at Pentecost. And I think it's more, uh, it, it makes sense that we would then see more clear describing of what the Holy Spirit does in salvation. Let me give you some, some text to look at. First, underneath that, the, the Holy Spirit regenerates all believers in the Old Testament. Jesus says that salvation is only possible through the Spirit. John chapter 3. I remember, we're treating the Old Testament as even going on during Jesus' life because he inaugurates the new covenant, and then we see Pentecost happen after Jesus leaves. So technically, Jesus is born into the Old Covenant. He interacts with people under the Old Covenant. Okay, So John chapter 3, it's a New Testament passage, but it's in the context of Old Testament people. Okay, So John chapter 3 Jesus talking to Nicodemus, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. Jesus is saying, look, 
you have to be born of the Spirit to be saved. Now, we go to this as a New Testament passage. Oh, this is how one gets saved. They have to be born again. They have to be born of the Spirit. What we fail to realize and remember sometimes is that this is Old Testament. This is Old Testament context. The Holy Spirit hasn't come the way we understand it in Pentecost yet. And yet Jesus is talking about regeneration and rebirth by the Holy Spirit to a man who's living in the Old Testament context. And he doesn't feel the need to say, this will be true after Pentecost. Like after the Holy Spirit comes, then we start talking about regeneration. No, he's saying, this is how a man gets saved. He has to be born again. He has to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit has to do something in that man's life for him to be saved. It's important that this comes before Pentecost. Okay? Um, John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. This goes back to attest to the fact that people in the Old Testament weren't better than us in the sense that they couldn't get their salvation without the Spirit. The flesh avails nothing. In their own efforts, they could not have ever opened their own eyes to see truth. They could have never been convicted of sin on their own. And they could have never guaranteed their salvation by persevering on their own. The Holy Spirit being born again, necessary for all believers of all time. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Now, this is in context where... Stephen is is presenting the gospel, and he's saying, don't resist the Holy Spirit. Don't resist this Holy Spirit that's trying to open your eyes to truth, to convict you of sin, and wants to guarantee your salvation. Don't resist him. But he says, you resist him just like your fathers did in the Old Testament. What that that indicates to me is that the Holy Spirit was doing the same type of work in the Old Testament, and he could be resisted in the Old Testament. He could be rejected. So there was... Uh, a desire, and there were people that had their eyes open to truth, that were convicted of sin, were guaranteed for their salvation by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Stephen is cautioning the people here, don't reject this. Don't be like your fathers in the Old Testament that rejected the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't be like that. Romans 8, 9 through 11 You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Talking about the importance of the Spirit, you can't be saved without the Spirit. And then in Jude 19... It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. The Spirit is necessary for salvation. It's always been necessary for salvation. You can't be saved without the person of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Okay, so we see that, but not only do we see this teaching, we also see that Jesus expected Old Testament Israel to understand this. 
back to that conversation with Nicodemus. Verse 9 of John 3, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? There's expectation here that, hey, I get the fact that you're an Old Testament guy, but you should be getting this because it's true in the Old Testament. You have to be born again. You have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit to be saved. The expectation was this Old Testament person should have understood that. Understood that. Uh, 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 a learner of the scriptures, a teacher of the scriptures should have gotten this. Jesus doesn't say, hey, this is new truth. You're in the new covenant now, and the Holy Spirit does this in the new covenant. He didn't do it in the old covenant. No, he says, hey, I'm, I'm just saying stuff that you should already know here. You, you should already understand this. You should get this. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be amazed at what I'm saying to you right now. You should have already understood this. You have to be born again to be saved. Okay? So the Holy Spirit regenerated all believers in the Old Testament. Number three, the Holy Spirit actively filled and empowered at least some individuals in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit actively filled and empowered at least some individuals in the Old Testament. So when we look in the Old Testament, we see at least some of them had a filling of the Holy Spirit and an empowering that came from the Holy Spirit. I want to give you, I'm going to read through a few verses real quick. You can jot some of these down if you want to. Um, we know from Scripture that some individuals were empowered for national or prophetic office. In Genesis 41, Joseph interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, offers his suggestions about how to avoid the famine. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Joseph had a filling of the Spirit where an unbeliever could even recognize it. He says, can we find anybody that has God's Spirit in him like this man? Okay? Uh, Numbers 11, 16 and 17. Numbers 11, 16 and 17. Moses was feeling like I do sometimes. He had too much responsibility, too many people he was responsible for. And so he says, I need some help. Verse 16, then the Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So here's an empowering of leadership with the Holy Spirit. The implication, though, is that the, that the Holy Spirit is indwelling or, or is upon Moses only at this time. And so he says, bring these other individuals, and we will put the Holy Spirit upon them. We're saying that the Holy Spirit actively filled and empowered at least some individuals in the Old Testament. Um, 
Numbers 14, 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. And we're not told that he has the Holy Spirit, but we are at least told he has a different spirit than other people. And it follows it up with he's fully obeyed me. He's fully submitted to me. Okay. Uh, Numbers 27, 18. So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit and lay your hands on him. So Joshua has the spirit in him, according to God. Judges chapter three. Verses nine through eleven. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Guys, empowered by the Spirit. Spirit comes upon him, empowers him to do something that uh, the indication is nobody else in Israel could have done at that time. He delivers Israel from this king. Individuals were empowered for specific tasks, not just for national and prophetic office, but for specific tasks. Exodus 31, 3 through 5. Or verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my name Bezalel, the son of Uriah, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, I don't know if this guy had no craftsmanship abilities before. I mean, imagine this guy who maybe is just a clumsy guy that never found his calling in life, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he's the guy that's going to build God's tabernacle. He's going to begin to construct these things, but God says, I've given him the Spirit, and he's going to have these abilities to construct according to my instructions. He's empowered for a specific task. Daniel chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Again, we're seeing that the Holy Spirit was upon at least some individuals in the Old Testament, in ways that we think about him being on people in the New Testament sometimes. Daniel chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in him whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. Now we know Daniel had a special gifting of God where he could interpret dreams before he ever even knew them. I mean, he just he had the ability through God to do this. Not in his own power, it's not in his own flesh, it's because God has given him the Holy Spirit. At least some individuals lacked the filling presence of the Spirit. We saw that in Numbers 11. Uh, 
I don't know if we did see that. Numbers 11.29. See if that's what I'm thinking of. Oh, this, this is good. Um, this is still in the same context of the 70 elders being called out. Two of them weren't present, but they still got the Holy Spirit. And other people start hearing these guys prophesying through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they come to Moses concerned about it, wanting to stop these guys. And Moses says, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them implying that God's Holy Spirit had not been made available to everybody. Moses says, I wish that all of you could have this. I wish that all of you could have the Spirit like I do and like these 70 guys have. That would make things a lot easier if all of you were being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then we also know from Luke 1.15 that John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit even prior to birth. Still, Old Testament context. So the Holy Spirit was empowering and filling at least some individuals very specifically. Number four, the Holy Spirit did not always remain in the same way, but his, present was, his presence was consistent. The Holy Spirit did not always remain in these ways that we're talking about. The Holy Spirit came upon individuals in ways that he stopped coming upon them. 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen. God's Spirit left Saul. God's Spirit had come upon Saul. God's Spirit left Saul. Judges 16.20. Tragic passage. Samson gets up to fight and he does not realize that the Lord's presence is no longer with him. Spirit had been upon Samson. You read through Samson's story. He's empowered. He goes and does crazy feats of strength. He's empowered by the Spirit. He goes and wipes out people by himself. He gets up to fight on this day. The Bible says he doesn't realize that God's presence had left him. So what we see in the Old Testament is the Spirit came in certain ways, but he didn't always remain in that way. But his presence was always there, Psalm 139.7. It's not that the Holy Spirit ceased to be. But the psalmist tells us that there's really nowhere we could go to escape the Spirit of God. Psalm 139, 7, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? So while the Holy Spirit came and went at times from individuals, his presence was always consistent in there. There was nowhere that an individual could go to escape his presence. Number five, the Holy Spirit actively spoke through some individuals in the revelation of God's word. The Holy Spirit spoke through prophets, spoke through individuals, God's word. Second Peter one twenty one. We uh, prophets don't create their own prophecies in the Old Testament. They speak as the Holy Spirit led them to speak. So Holy Spirit was active on prophets speaking inspired words that come directly from God, and they wrote them down. They wrote them down, and we have them in the Old Testament. Number six, the Holy Spirit provided leading, uh, leading and guidance. He led people in the Old Testament. He guided them in the Old Testament. We talk about the Holy Spirit doing that in the New Testament. Psalm 143, 9 and 10. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me 
on level ground. It's what we would call walking in the Spirit. Lead me according to your word. Let your Spirit guide me. Number seven, the Holy Spirit was not the primary manifestation of the presence of God. The Holy Spirit was not the primary way God revealed himself in the Old Testament. I think this is really important. I think this gives us a key to understanding why the Holy Spirit is different in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. We'll get, this, we'll get back to that in a minute. How was God's presence primarily felt in the Old Testament? If we talk about God's presence today, we talk about the Holy Spirit. Like, how do we, how do we talk about God's presence? It's the Holy Spirit that indwells believers. We're talking Old Testament context. How do we talk about God's presence in the Old Testament? Okay, his physical presence is, is, is given in some type of form with the children of Israel. He guides them as a cloud. He guides them as a pillar of fire. And then eventually he sets up his permanent residence in the tabernacle in the temple. And it's veiled from everybody else. But everybody knew that's where Yahweh's presence dwells. I think it would be correct to say that they didn't think of him as indwelling them like we talk about. I think that's different in the New Covenant. We don't have a physical temple, and it's why I've taught you guys that I don't believe we'll ever have a physical temple again that means anything for a believer. I don't think the temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, and it's a good thing for us to go back to. I think it's been torn down. It's destroyed. God dwells within us as his temple now. The New Testament calls us his temple. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. In the Old Testament, though, we see God's presence dwelling with Israel in a physical location. And I think that physical location, it was obvious to people around, too, where God's presence was. We see this in Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. In the wrong book of the Bible. And that's why that passage doesn't make any sense. In the wrong chapter. That's why that verse doesn't make any sense. All right, chapter 26. Verses 11 and 12, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This is God promising his presence with the children of Israel. We get a better idea of what that looks like as we work through uh, the Old Testament. In First Kings chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating his temple. The permanent residing place of God that's been longed for. The tabernacle, remember it was, a, it was a tent that was constantly being set up and torn down because of their wanderings. David wants to build the permanent temple, but God says, no, I'm going to have your son do it. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 57, Solomon is dedicating this to God. 
Verse 57, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Solomon is, is dedicating the temple and praying that God would indwell it like he had indwelt and, and, and been with the people in Israel in the past. He's praying for a physical indwelling of the temple. Be with us so that our hearts are inclined to follow you. God's primary way of revealing himself in the Old Testament was through this tabernacle temple setup. In Haggai 2, 4 through 5, says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is the in context talking about the glory of the temple. And God says, my spirit's with you. My spirit remains with you. But it remained in a different way than what we have in the New Testament. It was, it was relegated to the temple, the tabernacle. So in the Old Testament, we see the Father, tabernacle, temple. Then we see Jesus come where we have his physical presence. And that's how we begin to see uh, God manifesting himself during that intermediate time. It's through the person of Jesus. And I believe that's why Jesus says it's better for me to leave so that the Holy Spirit can come. Because for the first time ever, God's Spirit is, is in the context dwelling with God's people wherever they are. Not just in the context of Israel in the temple tabernacle, not just in the physical walking around presence with Jesus, but now wherever you go, whatever you do, to the ends of the earth, because I'm about to send you to share the gospel with everybody, my Holy Spirit comes and you don't have to worry about getting back to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God. You don't have to worry about the fact that your buddy Jesus is no longer here and we don't have the presence of God. He's saying, if I leave, the Spirit comes, and he indwells all of you, and you have my presence wherever you go. That's why Jesus says it's better. Because for the first time ever, I'm not relegated to be somewhere in a physical time and place to be in the presence of God in the way that we talk about in Scripture. Not to say that God all of a sudden becomes omnipresent when the Holy Spirit comes. He's always everywhere. But talking about his presence and his outworking of power Jesus says, if I leave, the Holy Spirit comes and you have it wherever you go. Wherever you go. Number eight, the Holy Spirit's work is seen as incomplete or unfulfilled. As great as the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament, as much as we've seen him working it out through people in the Old Testament, it's still an unfulfilled, incomplete promise. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel 2, 28-32 talks about this same idea. So how should we understand the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament? 
First, the Holy Spirit has always worked to regenerate believers. The Holy Spirit has always worked to regenerate believers. Secondly, Old Testament believers experienced a limited filling of the Spirit. So number one, Holy Spirit has always worked to regenerate believers. Number two, Old Testament believers experienced a limited filling of the Holy Spirit that rarely extended beyond themselves. Remember, we, we get back to that idea that Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, it's going to fill you, but not just satisfy you, it's going to spill out. And it's going to affect others. What we see in the Old Testament is a filling that happens, a limited filling, and it rarely gets to the point where, where it pours out into others. And number three, I think we can say the Holy Spirit was a transitory presence. Transitory presence and an unfulfilled promise. We have this idea of the Spirit coming and going, coming upon people for a time and then maybe not being there in the same way. Holy Spirit was a transitory presence and an unfulfilled promise. All right, so the Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer in the Old Testament is like the continual dripping of a little water onto a sponge. I heard one commentator put it this way. It's like the continual dripping of water onto a sponge. It gets wet, but it never fills up. It never overflows. So basically what we're saying in the Old Testament, they had enough of the Spirit to keep them alive and fruitful, but rarely did their lives overflow into the lives of others. So think of it as a sponge, water dripping onto a sponge slowly, steadily. There's enough there to wet it. Keep it alive, sustain it, but it's not filling it up and it's not overflowing. Okay, that, That's probably an appropriate way to see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He's there, he's active, he's doing some of the basic things that we would need him to do for salvation. But it's not what's coming. It's not the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets and people longed for. The Holy Spirit working in the New Testament. We're going to run through this real quick because I want to make sure next time we get into spiritual gifts. Why was the work? Why was the Spirit's work limited? I mean, let's just talk about this. Why did the Holy Spirit have to come later? Why didn't God just have the Holy Spirit doing all this all along? A couple of reasons I think Scripture gives us. Number one, knowledge of Christ was limited, and His job is to illuminate Christ. The Holy Spirit's job is to illuminate Christ. And at the point in the Old Testament, Christ had not come, and knowledge of Christ was very limited. So you can't have the Holy Spirit illuminating Christ when all he has to work with are pictures and shadows in the Old Testament. But we know from the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit has come to illuminate Christ. John chapter 15 Verse 26, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John sixteen fourteen. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it 
to you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. His job's not ready to happen in the Old Testament because Christ hasn't come yet. Number two, Christ had not yet been glorified. Jesus says the reason the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet is because I haven't been glorified yet. When the fullness of Christ came, then and only then the fullness of the Holy Spirit could come. All right, we talk about in the New Testament. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus comes in all his fullness. We see glimpses of Jesus in the Old Testament. We have Christophanies where we see that he's obviously in existence. He's working the, whole, the, the Old Testament's about him. But Jesus comes, that first coming, in fullness in the New Testament. And it's only then and only then that the Holy Spirit can come in all his fullness because he illuminates Jesus. Why did God choose Pentecost as the timing of the giving of the Spirit? We'll actually talk about that next week. We'll, we'll skip that. We'll talk about why God chose Pentecost specifically as the timing of the Spirit. What we do see is that after Pentecost, you might want to write this down. After Pentecost, the Spirit's work becomes more intensive, extensive, and obvious. After Pentecost, the Spirit's work becomes more intensive, extensive, and obvious. Spirit's work becomes more intensive, extensive, and obvious. The Holy Spirit's anticipated in the New Testament as coming in a more full way. Mark chapter 1, verse 8, John talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's coming in the future. Jesus talks about it in Acts chapter 1. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It was an anticipation that something more was coming, but what we do see in Jesus talking with his disciples is that there was an already existing presence of the Spirit with them. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus implies that they should already have some knowledge of what's coming. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So I think Jesus is saying, hey, the Holy Spirit's been here. He dwells with you. But we're about to change it up a little bit to where he's now actually going to dwell in you. There's going to be an overflow of what happens when that, when that occurs. But Jesus implies you already know him. You've already seen him working. He's been here. You know him. He dwells with you, but he's about to be in you. Um, there's a coming presence of him that they're not yet familiar with. You can see this in John 14, 18 through 26. Jesus implies some things that are going to take place that haven't taken place already. John 16, 7 through 15 is another place where we see that. Things that the Holy Spirit will bring to them. We may look at that more next week. How should we understand the Holy Spirit's work in the New Testament? Number one, he reveals Christ to us and forms Christ in us. He reveals Christ to us and forms Christ in us. Ephesians chapter 1.
15 through 19, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might, Paul prays for an increase in understanding about spiritual realities through the Holy Spirit. You can also see this in Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Galatians 4.19 and 2 Corinthians 3.18 also attest to this. Secondly, he restrains evil desires and produces fruit. So first, he reveals Christ to us and he forms Christ in us. He restrains evil desires and produces fruit. Galatians 5.16-25. He restrains the fruit of the flesh. He produces the fruit of the Spirit. Number three, he unites us to the church. He unites us to the church. Philippians 2, 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The reason we can be united together as a family even though we come from different backgrounds, different histories, we're united together because of the Spirit. We can find unity because of the bond of peace that comes from God's Holy Spirit. Lastly, he guarantees our inheritance. He seals us until the day of redemption. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer in the New Testament. Old Testament, remember, it's the dripping of water onto a sponge. The Holy Spirit's ministry to the believer in the New Testament is like a pressure washer jetting water into a sponge with the excess spilling out. You got drip, drip, drip in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, Pentecost comes, and it's like a pressure washer spraying water all into that sponge. And it takes as much of it in as it can, but it's spilling out everywhere, and the effects of it are multiplied greatly. Acts chapter 2. We'll close with this. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the, prom the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent 
Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I told you before Pentecost, you have a filling of the Spirit in some senses, but rarely is there an outward focus. You have believers in the Old Testament, but rarely is there an outward concern for others. Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes in a way that he hadn't been there before. And it begins to pour out to those that they were in relationships with. People begin to be added to the church regularly, daily, because of the effect that he was having in their life. I think we see the Old Testament Holy Spirit doing some of the same things he does in the New Testament. He's still working out salvation. But there's an empowering that happens in the New Testament that was maybe reserved for only select individuals for a time in the Old Testament where these great feats were taking place because the Holy Spirit came upon them. What we have in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit coming upon all believers. We all share in that Holy Spirit, which means the expectation for how we should be living out our faith is far greater than what we see in the Old Testament, I believe. I believe the expectation is that we're to have such an increased outward focus that our unity together is supposed to be so increased in a way that that Old Testament Israel didn't experience. And I think hopefully as we, we look at more of this gifting of the Holy Spirit, that we come to a better understanding. How are we supposed to be living in the New Testament in light of the fact that the Holy Spirit has come in all its fullness? He's always been here. The Old Testament people had a small sampling of him. He did the most crucial, necessary things. But he comes in all his fullness now that Christ has come. I think that has big implications for our church moving forward. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.